back to reply guys the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us i am kate willett and i'm julia claire ah kate we have good news for the first time in so long in i can't think of what the years. last yeah <laughs> <laughs> there hasn't been good news here since before you were born yeah um yeah. Let me tell you about um, a man named Bernie Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> he died 35 years ago. <laughs> um, no, okay, go uh, ahead. The, 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 last, the last good news was when Bernie Sanders recorded what we use as the outro music for our show. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a spoken word version of This Land is Your Land. Oh, I thought you were going to say um, um, that the last good news was when Bernie Sanders uh, recorded an episode of the Joe Rogan Experience. And I was like, yeah, that was... <laughs> That was my my peak experience as well. Yeah, I loved that. Um. Oh man. Well, we are very excited today on the show because, uh, as we said, we have we have some great news. Uh, which is that the first, uh, union was ratified in a vote. Uh, for Amazon, Amazon has its first union in the United States. Amazon warehouse, uh, yeah. Amazon warehouse, yeah. Workers at the warehouse in uh, in Staten Island, known as JFK Eight, uh, voted in favor of being represented by the Amazon Labor Union or ALU. And um, as of right now, the vote was. 2654 votes for 2131 votes against um and then there were 67 ballots contested by amazon but the margin of victory was such that it doesn't matter uh, we got it baby and yeah this is i mean this is just huge because i mean amazon i mean in addition to being one of the biggest and most exploitative corporations in the United States, they made an, a, a huge, huge, huge union busting effort. Um, the person who was the organizer of it, they actually started a new union, which is mm-hmm. not how it's usually done. Usually yeah. um, people you come under join the umbrella an existing of a union. union. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but they but so the organizer Chris Smalls was fired in 2020 from that same warehouse for leading a walkout due to pandemic safety conditions and Amazon's team um, of, you know, a I mean, so many union busters, lawyers, professional union busting firm. Uh, they hired a polling company that works with the Democratic Party all the time, which is really gross that yikes they would do that yeah <laughs> and you know they were holding captive audience meetings which means that you know workers have to go sit on their work time and get presentations about why unions are really bad there were posters in the 
bathrooms and all over the warehouse, there was massive surveillance of the workers um, to see, you know, who might be interested in joining a union. Were people talking to each other about unions? Massive propaganda effort of you know, this will mean mm-hmm. that you won't have as much money. You won't have as many rights. There was you know, a, a huge and also very racist effort to um, discredit Chris Smalls himself, people, the Amazon's firm painted him as a thug and tried to claim that he was not smart or articulate and really just leaned into being racist pieces of shit with that and uh, did not work. It's I mean, this is just this is an incredible victory. It's huge. I mean, yeah, I I read that Amazon spent four point three million dollars in the past year alone on union busting efforts. I'm sure the total number ended up being more than that. But I mean, this is what we t- what we've talked about on the show so many times before is that you can't outrun effective organizing. Uh, and I just want to I'm so excited about this. But yeah, obviously, the next big step is going to be um getting a contract ratified, negotiating their contract uh, slash collective bargaining agreement uh, with Amazon. And so I'm going to read this. This is from Vox. Uh, ALU leaders have said their main goals include increasing hourly wages for all workers to a minimum of $30 an hour. Amazon says their average hourly starting pay for U.S. warehouse workers is $18 an hour. The union has also said it will push for longer breaks for workers and eliminating mandatory overtime outside of a few peak weeks for online shopping. Um, ALU literature also said that its leaders want workers to have union representation present during disciplinary meetings to guard against unjust firings. Uh, Yeah, I mean, Amazon has a a history of, of really high turnover rate because uh, employees are very often being fired or quit for not being able to keep up with the, um, many would say, unreasonably demanding pace of work that is demanded of them. Um, Yeah. I mean, this is just, you know, this is huge in so many ways, but, you know, Amazon has been very, or at least somewhat, but ultimately... I would, yeah, Outstick was very, very successful in their union busting efforts so far. Um, and I think this is going to make it a lot harder because a lot of their talking points, you know, at Amazon are like, oh, you're going to have so much less money because you're going to have to pay, you know, $1,000 a year in union dues and think about what you could buy with $1,000. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's just going to be a lot harder when there's, you know, people from, the Amazon union, like actually there to tell those workers, no, we really got a minimum of $30 an hour for our, for people who work in the, um, in the, if in the warehouse in, in, uh, Staten Islands. And, you know, I mean, just that I, I think, and I mean, and they're, and they're going to get, uh, better. They're probably going to get a better health care plan. They're definitely going to get guaranteed. Like, I mean, you, what union protections allow you is guaranteed severance. Uh, if you're fired and you can't just, it's like, um, and a you union know, rep not, present at every disciplinary meeting, right? So, which is huge. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, it's and you know what's I I don't know how uh how many times you've seen this, but um you know, I'm a I'm a broke bitch, so I very often uh like most of my streaming services have ads. Yeah. <laughs> and um and I've seen this ad on TV as well, but Amazon has been running this ad for months of a black warehouse worker, one of their workers who has who was diagnosed with cancer and he's talking about how great it is and how Amazon treated him like a member of their family because they get health care on day one. Um and it was so transparent to me that this was you know, it's kinda like those weird rehabilitation uh ads that former governor Andrew Cuomo is running. It's like, hey, I made oh, yeah. mistakes, but I'm a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> bada bing bada boom I, comes out they're like um jeff bezos comes out and he's like i'm just italian <laughs> this is just part of my culture uh, it's actually it's, uh, racist uh, against italians you don't understand too. i'm a- <laughs> <laughs> and we're and we're not taking away columbus day because he's a great italian uh but yeah um yeah, it it was a really transparent push to kind of reverse the narrative that which that we we all know to be true about Amazon that they are like the biggest baddest private employer. I mean, they are the second largest private employer in the country. They have over 1.1 million workers. That's why I like it really can't be overstated how big this victory is and the ramifications and the snowballing that could could happen hereafter um i think it's so exciting uh union 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 i'm so excited uh i mean and also something that micah utrecht said who's the uh the editor of jacobin he was like you know there's gonna be a lot of like post-game analysis of this um, of what worked in this union, and I think that what we can learn um, is that the, you know, the unions, the union organizers in Staten Island just kind of took a throw shit at the wall and see what sticks approach. <laughs> yeah, and I that- mean, apparently they were just kind of basically camped out there for two straight years. Mm-hmm. So I mean, yeah, I, Chris Smalls they interviewed about him about what he's going to do now and you know he said fight for the fight for the contract but also sleep yeah. for the first time in a couple of years i mean i think that this i was, know oh my god i mean you know definitely this is this is an instance of i think you know historic labor organizer level i think right here so yeah this is, yeah. This is one for the books yeah um, yeah, absolutely. And um, I think that I mean, Vo- this this article in Vox called it one of the biggest worker victories in modern U.S. labor history. So I think I, I don't think that that's too crazy to say. Yeah, it's it's very, very, very exciting. Um, so, you know, anything else on on this? I mean, it's like there's no no, <laughs> no conflicting opinions here. This is incredible. So. You know, no, this is so good. And, uh, you know, I don't I don't even want to talk about any other news today. I don't think we have to. 
Yeah, that's true. Okay, well, tell me about the interview. What, what, what was that like? Uh, what'd, you, what'd y'all talk okay. about? Yeah. <laughs> so this week, I talked to my friend who is a writer uh, and comedian, uh, Ellery Smith. Um, she is an L.A. comic, and she also... She's just wanted. I I just wanted to talk to her this week about what those of us who are transplants to major cities can do to help our neighbors who have been there, uh, many perhaps many decades and generations before us, um, and kind of especially through the lens of like what what are our responsibilities to our neighbors particularly as like white transplants to majority minority communities. Um, And I think it was, we talked about a whole bunch of different things. It wasn't just that, but I thought it was really uh, a good conversation. Ellery is rocks. She really fucking puts her money where her mouth is. And uh, I hope you guys like it. That's awesome. Um, Well, I am in Bloomington, Indiana right now. I'm recording an album tonight and tomorrow so if you happen to be in bloomington indiana please come out to the comedy attic um i'm very excited about this album so i haven't done one since 2017 so this is really uh this is really fun gonna tell and if you haven't listened if you i mean first of all that's so exciting i love the comedy attic um and i love kate's comedy two of my favorite things uh so yeah if you if you haven't given kate's uh kate's last album glass gutter listen it is truly one of my favorites um so many great jokes i remember listen i think before i before i ever knew kate i had listened to it and i thought it was so fucking funny oh thank you uh and i love that album so uh definitely give it a listen if you haven't a lot of good jokes on there kate's just she's a she's a fucking pro Thank you. This, and I this am album just is, here. I'm just I'm just along for the ride. <laughs> this, this album, I think, I'm, I'm proud of it. I, I'm anticipating that the reviews might note that there's perhaps a bit of an overfocus on cum jokes, but <laughs> uh, and that's all we can do. I mean, I I believe that semen should be safe, legal, and rare. I'm not trying to ban it entirely, <laughs> but at the same time, we can't just you know, we, we can't just have it everywhere. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. You're so right. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, everybody, thanks so much for continuing to listen. Thank you for subscribing to our Patreon. Uh, and if you haven't, why not? Why not consider it? I We, we maybe. And yeah. um, thank you to everyone who continues to rate and review us on iTunes. If you haven't done so, it really helps us out. Um, we love to hear your feedback, even when it's mean. Uh, <laughs> and I will see you later. Okay, thank you. Hello, and welcome back to Reply, guys. Uh, very excited today to have uh, one of my, my longtime friends on the show, um, she is a comedian and writer in Los Angeles. She's very funny. She's very cool also, which we don't endorse on this show, but <laughs> sometimes it happens that we have guests who are cool. Uh, Ellery Smith, welcome to oh my gosh. the show. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on from Boston to here. Very exciting. I know. Yeah. Ellery and I know each other. We both kind of started doing comedy started in, in Boston, in Boston yeah. um, which seems, seems so long ago. Forever now. ago, I but know. not really. But it's um, also funny how like, I don't know how the classes of people sort of stay together. Like I'm friends with Jamie and you're friends with Jamie still. And we also yeah. sort of know each other and like, it's nice. We're like, we were all, we were all seniors in the same, in the, at the same yeah, time. It really does feel that way that we yeah. were all seniors in the same class. And uh, the Jamie she's referring to is of course, friend of the show, Jamie Loftus. Miss Jamie Loftus. Uh, Miss Jamie Loftus queen herself. herself. Yeah. <laughs> um, girl boss in chief. Girl boss. Oh my gosh. Genius. Prolific. Very, oh, very active in the mutual aid scene in here in Los Angeles. That's true. So. Yeah. We, yeah. We've actually, we, we've had, we've had Jamie on to talk about some, some mutual aid stuff. And I know that um, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to Ellery as well is because I know that she is very involved in uh, Los Angeles mutual aid. And I didn't, what I didn't realize until, you know, I, I knew that Ellery worked at a soup kitchen, but she actually runs one in Koreatown. And I would love to hear the origin story about that. That's so cool. So tell me about your work there. What's it, <laughs> yes. First of all, what's it called? Um, well, we don't have a name. That's it's, we don't have a name. There's like no branding around it. It's just the Tuesday Soup Kitchen um, at St. James Church in K Town. No affiliation. I'm not religious, but they let us use their space. And actually, how I got into it was another comedian, Dan Donahue, volunteered there on Saturdays at a shower program. He worked with Showers of Hope, which is a mobile shower program here in Los Angeles. They do really awesome stuff. Um, and so I worked there for a few weeks. And I connected with this other guy who was like looking to start a Tuesday meal service program. Um, and I had just lost, this was March, 2020. So I had literally just lost my job and I had, didn't have anything else going on. Um, so I was like, yeah, sure. Because I, I don't know if you remember, but I worked at Trader Joe's for like six years. I do in, remember that. Famously, 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 so. famously, famously for a long time. And then when I moved out here, they wouldn't hire me because I don't know, there's a long waiting list here, but I, so I digress. Kooky. It was kooky. It was wacky. It's um, wacky. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm Kate. Kate brings a lot of the edge to the show. I bring a lot of like octogenarian sayings and idiots. that's coming back around. You know what I mean? Like that's norm core now. People really like that. <laughs> so anyway, I had like a bunch of food experience because I've worked in kitchens too. So I was like, sure, I'll help. And so we get started and maybe one week goes by and then this guy gets accused of sexual assault from like some other org that he works with. He has to step down entirely. I never hear from him again. Um, and then it becomes my soup kitchen. And so for the last two years, I've just been. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you're going to inherit a soup kitchen, I guess that's the way to do it. That's kind of the way to do it. Yeah, no, to inherit it from a pervert is really just so special. <laughs> oh god i usually well, don't tell people about that but yeah that's how i ended up running a soup kitchen in los angeles <laughs> wow and it's well i mean clearly it's been um you know you're still doing it two years yeah, later it what, rocks yeah it rocks. what tell tell me about like what the ins and outs yeah so i mean we really we feed like 75 to 100 people every tuesday and we've also been able to expand into through the help of the, the church that I organized through, which again, is not my church. They just sort of have a lot going on there and let, you know, the Ellery, just, it's I know, okay. I know, it's I know, okay. I know, I know, I know, I just, 
<laughs> I know you're like a hardcore atheist or whatever, but sometimes God is fine. And God is fine. No, God is fine. He's totally fine. Um, but the people who do his bidding, not always so good. Oh, yes. Um, anyway, so yeah, we feed maybe 75 to 100 people every Tuesday, but we've also been able to expand into doing things like diaper banks, hygiene supplies. Um, we help people get their tax returns. We do vaccine clinics. Um, we have a medical group sometimes that comes and will help people check out, you know, whatever ailments they have, uh, especially people who are, you know, maybe a little bit more nervous to go into traditional veins of help with uh, state oversight because those, you know, avenues can be a little violent, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so, wow. I mean, that, yeah, it's so great. And I think that some people might hear some of those services offered and think like, oh, tax returns, interesting. Um, but the, I mean, we see this in, in I've, I've read about a lot about this in uh, the news, especially coming out of the encampments uh, oh, the Eric around. Adams. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. But also the encampments in LA is a lot of those people are, are employed. They, a lot of them are, a lot of them are employed, work full time. A lot mm -hmm. of the people we see work full time. Um, that's just a reality of Los Angeles where you can have one or two full time jobs and still not, you know, be able to make rent. Um, the housing market here is really a, a mess, obviously. Uh, and, there are also people like, cause you can't without a permanent address, there is just so many services that you can't access. Mm -hmm. And there are, California is great. There are a lot of services available, right? When I first moved here, I was very poor and I got um, state sponsored health insurance and a state sponsored phone plan, mm -hmm. but it was because I, you know, could log online and spend 12 hours in a row yeah. figuring out how to get those things. Mm -hmm. So we try to connect people to like services like that if we can. Yeah. Yeah, I know when, um, so my, my brother lived in California for the past four years and he moved out there because his partner got a job. Um, but my brother has type one diabetes. And so he didn't have a job when he moved out there and he also had to be, um, on California's, um, state sponsored health plan. And without that, I don't, I mean, the price of insulin is Yeah, I mean, Medi-Cal rocks. On yeah. Medi-Cal, um, I mean, you have to make under $24,000 a year, but I've been on it more often than I haven't been. But uh, medications are free at the point of pickup. So mm -hmm. insulin was probably free for your brother or like mm -hmm. I was on Wellbutrin for a while and that was completely free. Okay, awesome. yes, SSRI yeah. queens. SSRI queens. Um, I'm a Prozac queen myself, but uh, I was on Lexapro and Wellbutrin and it just, it really like affected my appetite in like a very sort of unhealthy way. And yeah. I was like, we need to sort of pick something else. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Ellery and I have a lot of similarities. <laughs> Similar. <laughs> if, if, if people aren't picking, picking that up, that I think they know, <laughs> I think you probably been able to Tell. piece together why we're friends. Um, so yeah, I, you are someone who I think of as being very like mindful about the space that you're occupying in a city that you didn't grow up in. And I, that's something that I think about a lot as well. You know, you and I are both white transplants to mostly like areas 
like areas in our cities that are predominantly not white. I'm speaking for myself anyways. Um, and it's really been something that's been on my mind for a long time since I moved here. I was just like, I don't want to be like a leech on this neighborhood. And I want to find a way to like connect with my neighbors and give back to my neighbors. Um, and, you know, the way that I've found to do that has been through housing justice advocacy um, in New York City and tenants rights advocacy um, and volunteering in like local elections. Um, and with you, obviously, you run a soup kitchen, <laughs> which is very <laughs> cool. But is this something that you think about as well? I, I would imagine it is, but um, definitely. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I'm, I'm lucky in that. First of all, there are a lot of comedians out here who also work in or try to do a lot of community service. So I'm, I'm lucky in that I have a lot of wonderful people setting really good examples and leading the way that I can turn to. Um, but it's interesting because especially in Los Angeles, there's such a pervasive sort of liberal sense of charity that mm -hmm. can really be more destructive than it is helpful. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the things that I feel like we're combating are like, like a real issue we had for a while is like people will leave, like just leave groceries to like on the edge of encampments and sort of walk away, which is not really good because groceries expire. And if nobody knows that they're there and like, you really need to think about like, okay, what can people cook? Like, do yeah. they need can openers? Do they need somebody, a heating source? Like, do they need water? These are all like, you know, resources that are not easy to come by. And we also in Los Angeles, there is such a political wave that is like <laughs> desperate to criminalize poverty. Oh, and yeah. So we have like encampment sweeps all of the time. They're very expensive for the city and it really like displaces a bunch of people. I've been president a bunch and I've, I've watched people get their birth certificates thrown out, their licenses thrown out, like things that will genuinely make it harder for these people to come back to the center of our society and, and you know, not just exist at the margins, it marginalizes them further and it makes their lives more difficult. And it's a waste of taxpayer resources. And so we have a lot of, I don't know, issues like that or like the Echo Park Lake protest last year, which is about yes. a year ago this year. Yeah, actually that's that's when we had, that's the last time we had uh, Jamie on to talk yes, about that. Yes, because Jamie yeah. was there. Yeah, yeah, Jamie and I were there like, gosh, we were probably there for 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the TLDR of it is that there is a community of people living inside Echo Lake Park, which is a public park. And it was really like a neighborhood. And yeah, they were mm -hmm. tents, but they weren't, you know, dirty or whatever. The, the city likes to use the excuse of trash, to, which is why leaving groceries somewhere, not telling anybody that there is so harmful because it creates another reason for the city to come sweep mm -hmm. this encampment. But at the Echo Park Lake protest, it was very interesting it was so militarized. They fenced the whole yeah, park the perimeter with, yeah. with, with people inside and they wouldn't let any supplies, no water, no food, no hygiene supplies in or out. And then they told a bunch of people that they would get housing. And then a lot of housing fell through and they were not offered housing. And then the, the few, like the housing that was available was temporary. And it was, you know, in a different part of the city and nobody was offering these people rides. It was sort mm -hmm. of like, yeah, you, you could go to the Valley and get a hotel room there, but nobody's going to be helping you get there. Like you need right. to find a ride for yourself. 
it's just all fucked. <laughs> and also, I mean, as we've said, a lot of these people have jobs. So have jobs, have jobs. They, and and, they'll and then they don't leave. have cars. And- yes. And they'll leave for the day to go to work. And it's so it's interesting because New York has a right to housing law, which is, you know, on its face, a good thing. But the housing and the shelters that are offered to people are not always conducive to their actual lives. Right. So they'll be offered housing in some different part of the town where they don't know anybody, their neighbors aren't there. They don't work around there. You know what I mean? So when I, you know, I talk to a lot of people who think of unhoused people as being service resistant. And I really would encourage everybody to think about the types of services being offered. Like, is it, is it actual service or is it sort of a carceral service? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Or just kind of a, I mean, they're band-aids. A lot of these, a lot of band-aids, the services are just really, um, extremely temporary transitional and so much more expensive for the city Mm -hmm. over the long term, which is where I get so frustrated with it because it's not that it's not like there aren't good workable solutions that would eventually save us all money. It's that people don't want anybody to have what they think they didn't work for. Right. And okay. So it's a real like Reagan era mindset. (laughs) Oh yeah. And, and, and I think that the, you know, the impetus that you see in Los Angeles to criminalize poverty, that is certainly all over the country. That's not just in Los Angeles. That's everywhere. That's certainly here in New York city. Um, You see that people, you know, a lot of people will get arrested for turnstile jumping in the subway and find more than a parking ticket is like, it's just for a $2 and 50 cent fare. Um, it's, I mean, there are so many ways that the different state, uh, at the state level and the federal level, federal, yeah. um, and then even poverty at, is criminalized at the, you know, poverty is also punished, right? We're moving towards a cashless society society. Yes. And it's, it's, it's fucked. It's, <laughs> it's fucked. And it's, it's in all of our sort of like small instances, it's really interesting. And then the way specifically in Los Angeles where people are so desperate to police poverty or, or to even just to get it off the streets so they don't have to see it, but they're not so willing to do what it might have to take. Do you know what I mean? Like, like a problem I have at the soup kitchen is one time a man called the police on the soup kitchen because he was like, there are a lot of people loitering around here. Are you, oh my God. And people call the police around the community fridges all the time, all the time. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so you're, yeah. so you're not only criminalizing poverty, you're criminalizing people trying to help as well. They're trying to help. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because it's, and so an, another issue, the soup kitchen is attached to on the other side of the building as a private school, right? A very expensive private school. And the soup kitchen used to be from 11 to 3 PM. And the school asked us to move it from four to six because they didn't want the kids to see or like be around like people who are lining up to eat there. And it's, I'm assuming it's just a, it's a religiously affiliated school. I mean, yeah, definitely. But it was just like such, I, I really, I got, I sort of popped off a little bit and it was very much like, I mean, I can't believe that you're so afraid that your kids would see poverty instead of like knowing that there's something that they could do to help. Like your kid kid can make a sandwich. Like I have teenagers volunteering with me all the time or Mm -hmm. even younger. I have like school age kids. Like they can, they can help. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like it doesn't have to scare them. (sighs) Ugh, yuck. (laughs) 
<laughs> yuck indeed. Yuck. Yeah. And then um, I'm also like, guess who else? Like kids, kids come to the soup kitchen to eat. Of course. Of course. Like there, they there are do. children coming to get this. Like there are poor kids out there. Of course. I, yeah. I mean, you see that a lot in New York to the quote unquote, the, like the extent of people's quote unquote liberalism. So uh, it's, and uh, you know, basically it's like every time. So New York city has the most segregated public schools in the country. Uh, 70% of New York city public school students are black and brown. Um, and that just shows you how many of how many white parents send their kids to private school here. Uh, but again, the public schools are so segregated. So on the Upper West Side, you might have, or the Upper East Side, you might have a basically like borderline, like suburban, literally white uh, New York City, New York City public school. Oh my God. And sometimes they'll get, um, you know, because of redistricting or something, they'll get combined with a majority black and brown school. And who do you think the first parents are to angrily protest that decision? It's always it's always white parents. white parents um, who are probably like, I'm look, I've read. <laughs> I read White Fragility. I, I know read White Fragi- Fragility. <laughs> I read Ta-Nehisi Coates. <laughs> but this will ruin our Wikipedia school. Page. I yeah. mean, <laughs> it's also what's so interesting is like there's also a real problem with white parents going into predominantly uh, non-white schools and then deciding that they get to make all the decisions. Totally. Being like, well, my, my kids go here now. So like, you know, it, what I say about how we fund what matters. And it's, that, that's the other thing is like. And that's exactly, that's exactly what happens. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and you see it in a d- bunch of different sectors, like specifically as it pertains to housing or, mm-hmm. you know, food insecurity. It's people who generally want to help and come and, you know, enter themselves in and like start making decisions and like, you know, and this is, this is, I think what I'm really trying to say is that liquid cash is always more valuable than any item you have to donate. Does that make sense? Yeah. Where it's like, when you decide what people need, you are taking away their agency. Mm-hmm. And that applies across all sectors of help, whether it be schooling, whether it be housing, whatever, when you decide what people need, that takes away their ability to make decisions or where they should live. It's mm-hmm. also the issue with sort of like the tiny house movement. It's yeah. like, so you're just sort of, you're telling people what type of life that they need to live. You're telling people where, where they should live, right? They don't get to pick which neighborhood they get to be in. And then all of these rules are associated with this tiny housing, whether it be, okay, you have to be sober. Okay. You have a curfew. Okay. No pets. Okay. No loved ones. It's a, it's a culture of like policing and control. Yeah, of course. Well, because there is this pervasive notion among, you know, right-wing centrists and some center-left folks that like, because if, if someone has gotten to a point in their life in which they are homeless, then they then shouldn't they be able be to make, to their, make own, their, their own decisions. And they yeah. have their quote unquote bad decisions are what got them there, which I, I mean, it's so untrue. And I just really think that, I think that there will not be like a mass movement, a mass solidarity movement in this country until 
most of us realize that we are so much closer to homelessness than we are to being a millionaire or whatever. I, yeah. I, and that's because why people just true. don't want to look at it. It's so uncomfortable for them. I don't know. I, it also gets less scary the more on the front lines you get. And it's very empowering to do. So if you are somebody who thinks of themselves as sort of like lost or, and actually California, going back to your point about like people who we think made bad decisions, California is really getting into forced conservatorships for mm. unhoused people or uh, people who are addicted to drugs. Mm-hmm. And I've seen so many people sort of uplift that headline being like, California is doing something like we're getting people help. And I don't see it that way. I see it as like, it's another form of prison kind of where it's like, as soon as you decide somebody can't make their own decisions, it's such a slippery slope. It's such a slippery slope. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, you think of the, I mean, the conservatorships became kind of like a household name in the U.S. because of Britney Spears. Britney Spears, yeah. And so think about a conservatorship like that, except someone who has no resources. Britney Spears, even though Britney Spears couldn't access her resources, like she wasn't allowed to handle her own money, which is batshit. Um, but yeah, it's, it, I mean, the more we all learned about the details of that conservatorship, it's like, it's absolutely draconian and it would be so much worse for someone who, who doesn't was have all, any advocate, right. have anybody looking out for them. Someone who's it, already marginalized in exactly. so many different ways. Exactly. And I think sort of the painful truth is for all of us, it like a lot of people in the subconscious way, I think it would be easier if those people disappear. If they like 100% just get taken care of, if they go to some institution, if somebody's like, quote unquote, supervising them, if they have a case manager and if that would just be so easy for us, if that was the solution, if they could just poof, be gone and be getting help and we don't ever have to think about it again. But that's, you know, just because it's out of our line of sight doesn't mean it's not happening. And like that is such a dangerous position to be in where we can forget what's going on. So there I mean, there are like there was a confluence of events that led to the, um, you know, the, the boom in unhoused populations in the U S one of them. I mean, as, as we've said there more and more, there are people who are full-time employed who are unhoused, um, because housing prices have gotten, have so far outstripped inflation and the like, yeah. And, and also that, um, no, new housing, <laughs> new housing hasn't been built since, uh, the recession pretty much the, the first recession in 2008. Um, and which is a long time for new housing to not have been built. And also in the eighties, this is what I was getting. This is where, where my little brain went with the Reagan era <laughs> in the eighties. Um, a lot of the state mental health facilities shut down, shut down. And those were these like large state facilities that were shut down because there were a lot of kind of exposés about the treatment that was going on in those facilities of the, the residents there. And a lot of those people ended up on the street and yeah. those people, they were supposed to be transitioned. There was like supposed to be this plan of them being transitioned to smaller, housing, like smaller mental health communities and just didn't happen. And we have kind of like hollowed out the social safety net to such a degree in this country that now, again, housing 
costs are astronomical. Any, any help that exists is privatized. Exactly. It's fucked. And it's also the the largest collection of mentally ill people in the country is in the LA public county jail. Right. And jails have, I mean, the street and jails have become the that's our mental health like the, plan. Exactly. It's it's crazy. It's crazy. And then I mean, you hear reports from jails about just the privatization of like reading books, sending letters, getting emails, phone calls, the exorbitant, you know, really like price gouging that happens in there. It's across the board, just, just a war on the poor. And when you basically militarize everything and you make everything carceral, you erode a citizen's like trust in you. So when I try to go into encampments or, you know, try to meet with people who are at the margins, it becomes so much harder for me to gain trust because they have been lied to by every state official they've ever met. Right. They've been, they've been threatened by police. They've been harassed by private citizens. Do you know what I mean? Every, every one of those instances of regular state violence now makes them harder to, to contact. It makes it mm-hmm. now because like, like we had such a hard time getting people to trust our medical team or to like come agree to get a vaccine because at every step of the way they've been like gaslit by medical professionals or like yelled at by case managers or just told that like they're crazy and their point of view doesn't matter you know yeah no it's so true and it's absolutely true it's it's not again it's all these problems that exist in la are really just like microcosms of what exists all over the u.s like and they're all connected too they are all connected but the the prison system is the biggest uh you know facility currently housing um people with with mental health issues in this country and there are a lot of, I mean, again, going back to like criminalizing poverty, it's also criminalizing being poor and being mentally ill because there are a lot of, you know, there are just a lot of times where even if someone has not done, done something technically illegal, it's clear that like from police reports that it's like, oh, this person was being crazy in public. Yeah, exactly. Which is not (laughs) like, I mean, that's just what a disturbing the peace charges. Right. Right, Exactly. It's just making everybody else feel kind of unsafe, which is why things like citizen or next door are so bad and dangerous, Mm -hmm. like genuinely dangerous. There's a, there's a privatized um, citizen security force out here. And I guarantee you by like the time that the Olympics, a lot of this, at least in LA is deeply tied to the Olympics coming a lot of the, the ramping up of you know, criminalization and militarization that is directly tied to the Olympics. That these, these, you know, private security forces are basically, are like basically black water for our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. It's, it's deeply, deeply, deeply fucked. Deeply fucked. Yeah. I, I'm, yeah. I mean, the Olympics is like a whole, whole other can of worms in terms of what, what that does to a city's infrastructure and uh i remember that boston was one of the cities that was like um that was kind of like on on the docket for the olympics and everyone was like where where would like were no but genuinely where where would they put it where would they put it it's too like the t in boston runs remarkably 
remarkably well for how old it is. Um, and I just cannot, again, Boston is like very small and compact. Everything is kind of like really condensed into one, one little area, but I mean, it just like the Olympics just can really displace a lot of people can just like really change a city for the worse for decades, for decades. It's, I have a hard time really interacting with it intellectually because it makes me feel so overwhelmed, but it genuinely is one of those acts of state violence that like, I just can't get over like the way that it's going to, the way that it is already fucking with Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Like that's why they did the Echo Park Lake thing. Oh yeah. they're, They're getting us used to sweeping huge encampments of people so that, or a, a perfect example that will happen again with the Olympics is the Super Bowl was just in Los Angeles. And so weeks before they swept all around SoFi Stadium of people. And not only that, but they made um, street vending illegal so that yeah. all of the money had to be spent inside SoFi Stadium. And Los Angeles has a long culture of, of fruit vendors and street sure. stuff like that, but suddenly gone, not allowed. That's, I mean... So we we dealt with this in the the mayor's race in uh, in New York is that, you know, Andrew Yang was talking about how like the churro ladies shouldn't be allowed to be in the subway, like the ladies who sell churros fuck in the subway. Oh, fuck all the fuck way off. off. Kill yourself. I will. I will throw my body in front of a churro lady. I'm not sure anything better. I'm just, it's like, those are the things that, those are the things that make a neighborhood. Genuinely. Those are the things. No, that make it's, it's true. And Being it's able to buy, like to walk outside your door and buy some fruit. That's like kind of what it's all about. Like, do we want to just be like, okay, swiping cards at stores and not talking to cashiers and robots checking us out? Like. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, yeah, the Olympics, it, there is something so grim about about that, about how in preparation for the Olympics, there are usually these like mass clearings of um, things that the city the the city in question considers unsightly. Yeah, um, and it's usually people like certain kinds of people. Certain kinds of people. I remember, you know, the Beijing Olympics. They stopped. They basically forbid cars from being driven for like a year over a year prior um because there was some to like clear the smog Smog. wow um that one's kind of (laughs) based i don't know okay can i be honest i don't know what that means (laughs) oh (laughs) it means cool (laughs) i see okay i okay well now i've learned (laughs) i didn't okay i've seen it on twitter a lot i don't know what based I just learned what it meant. Um, thank you. You're acting 35 years older than you are. Like you're not an old, you're not I, an old person. We're the same age, basically. No, we're not. You're younger than me. Yeah, and but barely. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't know what base meant. I didn't. I also. Everything's hard. Okay. <laughs> Shut up. I'm cool. Uh, you are cool. You are I, cool. I do slam dunks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, there's, there's just so there's so much there there when you're talking about our unhoused neighbors and the systems that keep them unhoused. Um, And this is this is absolutely true that we haven't built any new housing 
since the 08 recession. That's true. But another reality and people like Yimbies, like people who are very into the, like, uh, who think that the only solution, is, solution new housing. is new housing. No, it's like vacancy tax. Let's come on there. Well, there's so, there's so many, like, and there's that's another thing, like vacant houses, a pied-a-terre tax in New York state. I talk about this all the time. It's overwhelmingly popular with everyone in the state and it never gets passed because rich people find a way to kill it because they're the ones who benefit from it. Obviously. Absolutely. Something like that would flood the market. That's the thing in Los Angeles. There is more than enough available housing, but homelessness has a utility for the ruling class. Exactly. So it's, it's, it's not just new. It's not just new housing. There's also the issue of, you know, the fact that, you know, why don't we investigate why starter houses of, of your are being bought in cash for over asking prices, waiving all the inspections by corporations. Yes. By, by hedge funds, by it's- hedge funds. And people act like that's not that it's like, Oh, like there were all, there were a bunch of articles a year or two ago that being like BlackRock isn't the reason why there's a housing crisis. Maybe not the reason, but they're not fucking helping. They're not helping. They're not helping. They like 30% of houses in the United States are not owner occupied. So that's a fucking lot. And there was, there was a, um, a segment on 60 minutes a week or two ago, uh, to once again, be 70 years old, uh, um, yeah, there's a segment on 60 minutes about such a corporation that's actually headquartered in Toronto and they talked to the CEO and he owns th- this company owns 30,000 houses, mostly in the Sun Belt, And they do exactly that. They buy, and then they, they set the rental prices yeah, and that, of course they perpetuates, do. And that affects the market, right? Yeah. That perpetuates the, the price of housing. And it also ensures that no one who actually can even afford to rent will ever be afford ever be able to afford to um, well, there's no money save for a down payment. Yeah, there's there's no money for corporations and people owning their own houses, right? Like that's that's a that's sh- shrinking the rental market, which makes them hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. So they like have to. And what's really interesting is in LA we have a huge problem with. I mean, and talk about like Russian sanctions. We have a huge problem with oligarchs of you know every flavor coming here and basically buying luxury condos as a way to launder money as a way to just, oh, park, yeah. as a way to park their money and have it grow every year and not have to pay like, you know, certain taxes on it. And so it's like, okay, we're, we're not going to serve Russian vodka at the laugh factory, but we will let them <laughs> buy up all of our housing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like where we draw the line is so stupid. Like it's like, it's we, so, yeah, where we, we could start there because it's, it's so are, arbitrary where, so arbitrary. where we draw the, draw it's the fake. line. It's it fake. makes me think of, it makes me think of this 30, there was like a 30 rock joke about when Liz was like, she was looking for her dream condo or something. And she went through this whole, like the whole episode was her going through the process. And then at the end, like an oligarch walked in and he was just like, I'll take it. I will park. I'll let my son park his motorcycles here. And that's exactly what happens. And that is exactly what happens. But yeah, evergreen, evergreen, evergreen. Um, well, is there, I mean, I, my question is, is there (laughs) like, what do you see in LA that gives you hope? 
I see a lot of really cool mutual aid organizations. You know, I think about this a lot. The soup kitchen is awesome. It's very empowering. A lot of our friends, comedians come and help out. And so it really feels communal. Um, and sometimes it, it feels like a fight for your life. Like things are really bad out there, but being able to do something about it is always the way to like ground yourself. Like in any city of your choosing, there are existing mutual aid organizations that are doing the work and need foot soldiers. And there mm-hmm. are people who are already out there doing what needs to be done and you can connect with them at any point. Like um, Andrew T, who is a, a wonderful podcaster and comedian out here. He comes to my soup kitchen sometimes and helps us. And, you know, one time we had a bunch of dishes to do and I felt bad asking him. And I was like, Oh, Andrew, like, I'm so sorry, but do you mind helping us with the dishes? And he was like, listen, in the revolution, somebody still needs to wash the dishes. (laughs) It's true. There, there are so many little things that you can do to contribute to the revolution. There's no one way to help like anything. And honestly, if you find yourself with no time and lots of money, that's a good way to help. Liquid cash is always the most helpful thing that you can send someone. Amen. Well, and a woman. That's right. (laughs) Well, folks, we had a great episode. I learned what based means. And um, I think I've changed as a person over the course of this conversation. Um, Ellery, this has been such a great chat. Where can our listeners find you? You can find me on Instagram, Ellery underscore Smith. Thank you so much for having me. This is so, so much fun. Well, we'll have to have you back. And you know what? I'd love, um, I'm going to be in LA later this month, as I've told you. And I'd love, I'd love yeah. to, to stop by on a Tuesday. Maybe that's that would be fun. Yeah. But I'd love, I'd love to help on Tuesday. This is, this has been so great. And uh, in the revolution, we will all pitch in and do the dishes. Um, Division of labor starts at home. <laughs> Ellery, thanks so much. Uh, This was the best. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Reply Guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians, with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. Walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land.